Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week we are back to Brexit, and I'm joined by our reporter Gronia Nia and Noelle O'Connell, Executive Director of European Movement Ireland, as well as our Executive Producer on The Explainer and Acting Editor of the Journal.ie, Christine Bohan. They are all here to catch us up on everything that's been happening, which, guys has been a lot. It yeah. was a lot. <laughs> no one has slept. So, <laughs> no, it's been very quiet. Nothing's going on. <laughs> and I'm also looking forward to looking ahead as far as is possible when there is a flex tension at play. Um, and with the news of that flex tension, newspaper editors were absolutely spoiled for choice. Should they go with that Halloween angle with the new 31st of October deadline or the first picture of a gigantic black hole? Black um, hole. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> it was the choice Definitely of Manny this morning on the first. The front pages. Grania, we had been on a 12th of April deadline, which is Friday, um, but we don't need to worry about that anymore, right? Uh, no. So that's completely off the table at the moment. And it was really bizarre uh, yesterday, you know, when we're talking about a no deal Brexit possibly happening 48 hours away, there wasn't that much concern because everybody kind of had taken it for granted that an extension of some sorts will be given. And, and they were right. Uh, we were given one. Uh, the, the one thing that might have struck people is the date. Everybody expected a year, but it was a six month extension till the, th- uh, the 31st of October. So Brexit is happening on the 31st of October? Maybe. Okay, give us the play-by-play of what exactly happened in Brussels. So the 31st of October is the latest deadline according to this latest extension. It could happen before then if Theresa May gets her deal passed in the House of Commons. Very big if, as we know, it's been rejected three times uh, so far. Um, But she has it going for her that a lot of other options have been ruled out by that same House of Commons. Um, So she's going to try and get Labour support. She's given up on her own party. She's like, I can't uh, win over any more MPs and uh, Tory rebels. So she's going to try and get, with the help of uh, Jeremy Corbyn, to get Labour MPs to vote for her deal now. And her aim is to try and get it approved before the European elections. Which May had a, are the 22nd of May? 20. Uh, they're, they're held in across across Europe between the 23rd and the 26th. Okay. So she's trying to get this whole thing sorted before then so the UK don't have to take part. That's a big ask. She originally asked for an extension till the 30th of June so she wouldn't have to deal with this whole EU elections thing. The EU had a different view on it. They said that there'd be a legal issue if... The UK were still in the European Union, but their citizens wouldn't vote in the elections. And if Brexit wasn't still sorted by the 30th of June, then they'd be in the European Union, wouldn't have representation. It was just a legal mess. So they're saying, take part in European uh, elections, prepare for European elections. We'll give you an extension up until the 31st of October. Um, if you're out before then, great. But it's not likely. Noel, what's the reaction from European countries to this rolling deadline? It feels like we're just constantly on a deadline now. I know it's a bit like a never ending leaving cert that the uh, <laughs> the start date keeps getting uh, pushed out. Um, r- really interesting. I've uh, been over and back to Brussels uh, pretty much once a week for the last month. And it's fair to say almost every week that level of and that sense of kind of frustration, exasperation, and genuine Brexit weariness and Brexit fatigue has 
really, really struck me. And certainly, you know, over the last number of years from when the referendum took place, like we're talking, you know, pretty much nearly nearly three years uh, at this stage. Um, there's also a sense that the European agenda and the really big challenges that are facing the EU as a whole are being somewhat uh, stymied and being s- frustrated because the whole agenda and the, the Brexit has absorbed the vacuum and, you know, things like the EU-China trade deal. And if you were looking at Juncker talked about that in his press conference at was it one o'clock or two o'clock <laughs> last nice. night. Yeah. yeah. And it hardly got the focus and the mention it, it deserves. Um, the challenges around the migration crisis. Brexit is is just sucking all the oxygen out of the agenda. Is that why we're getting an October fixed deadline rather or October end deadline, I guess, rather than fixed instead of March that people had talked about, like Ronya said. Yeah, I I, I suppose I would uh, add the health warning that with Brexit, can we ever be sure or certain Mm -hmm. of any fixed uh, deadline? So with that with that caveat and health warning, what you saw, interestingly, was the EU 27 have up to now been absolutely rock solid and consistent and uniform in terms of their approach. There has been a couple of odd wobbles here and there, but nothing significant. It's actually unprecedented, right? That is that like I think that's really important to stress that it's it's unprecedented to have that level of agreement amongst twenty seven different countries. I mean, think about it with with our own families. Would you get uh, you know agreement on anything amongst twenty seven <laughs> members? Well, there you go. <laughs> but what we saw interestingly, uh, and and the takeaways from last night is that. There, it's very hard to maintain that unity and that there is a risk that the longer this goes on, like that sense of cohesiveness may slightly fracture. I mean, some EU member states wanted a shorter extension, some wanted a longer extension. So in the best traditions of all things EU related, we got a, we got a, a you know, a good compromise, a, a good midway point. What that means is if, if the UK um, doesn't pass uh, the, the withdrawal agreement, uh, as Gorney said, before then, um, we're in the case of, you know, the new commission will take, will assume it's uh, their, their portfolios the day after on the 1st of November. So there is a sense of the pressure being put on the UK to, to come to a consensus and come to some sort of compromise. Christine, Noel says uh, compromise. I think some other people would say fudge. What or how are people reacting this morning? Is this a good thing, a bad thing? It depends on who you ask, because as with, you see, with all things Brexit, there's a huge spectrum of opinion. If you look at the front pages today, everything that happened happened so late that some of the British papers just, just didn't even cover Brexit. If you look at the tabloids in Britain today, their front pages are about Strictly or about, you know, complete things that are... Just... Darcy Bustle is leaving. It's a very big look, story. Look, I know it's a very, very... <laughs> Sorry, hang on. Stop the podcast. What? That's going to be next week's complainer. Okay. What, what happened there? Um, and then, so for some of the papers, what they did instead was they focused on the never ending, the, the always ongoing um, question about uh, Theresa May's leadership. So the front of the Telegraph was that Theresa May has been given a month after the EU showdown um, for her leadership. The complete opposite was on the front of the Times. It said that May defies Tory rebels with a pledge to stay on. Like if we remember last month, Theresa May said that she was not prepared to delay Brexit any further than the 30th of June as Prime Minister and she would resign once that phase of talks was over but now it looks like she's saying it's going to be tied her leadership is going to be tied to passing the withdrawal agreement rather than a specific date but as with all things Brexit and as with all things to do with the Tory leadership it's really hard to say for sure what's actually going to happen we know she won a a confidence vote last December she became immune from another challenge from her leadership until uh, from her MPs sorry uh, for 12 months 
So if she were to go, it would have to be due to pressure from senior party figures urging her to resign rather than an actual formal challenge from um, from her from her MPs. So that's kind of how the British papers reacted today. They kind of, you know, focused an awful lot on her on her leadership and what's going to happen. And the question is just open ended because we don't know what's going to happen, happen. With, with, with her leadership. Um, and then as well. Kind of gener- more generally, the, mute- the reaction from um, senior figures and politicians were quite muted in some ways, partly, I think, because it was so well flagged. You know, we, we did, like as Noelle was saying, we knew that there was going to be this, this extension was most likely. We didn't know the details of it. Um, but it could also be that this happened so late that a lot of people went to bed afterwards and they're only waking up now. And that's why we haven't heard from, say, Simon Coveney or much more from uh, from Leo Radker. Um, there was one interesting thing. David Davis, the former Brexit secretary, uh, many, many uh, aeons ago, if you remember, he said that if the European elections do happen for Britain, it will be a de facto plebiscite on Brexit. And he raised the point this morning on BBC Radio 4 that he says he suspects that we'll see a large number of anti-EU MEPs elected if that does happen. And I thought that was a really interesting uh, take Yeah, that's come up before. Like Nigel Farage has even said in Parliament, do you want me back? And kind of the undertones of do, do you want more people like me? Would that happen, do you think, Noelle? I think in terms of the, uh, you know, if if the UK has to uh, run European Parliament elections, we have MEP candidates. I think you'll see also many pro-EU candidates, a lot of Remain. I mean, we saw recently um, six million people signed the petition mm-hmm. to revoke Article 50. There is a bit of a debate on the People's Vote March in terms of the final numbers. Some people are saying it's a couple of hundred thousand. Others were saying it's over a million. But whatever, and we're seeing it actually from a European Movement Ireland perspective, it's really interesting. Any of the British media that we've seen, uh, Christine, to go to your point, is the UK now, in a paradoxical sense, has the most passionately pro European Remainers across the EU member states. So notwithstanding, um, Sinead, the challenges of Euroscepticism and Europopulism on the rise in other countries, there is ironically, as a result of Brexit, the most, a very solid cohort of passionate pro-Europeans. And we're seeing that in Ireland as well. Absolutely. Um, It's something that we've done since 2013. We've uh, commissioned Red Sea to carry out an Irish EU sentiment poll. And since we started polling people, uh, what is it, over six years ago now, the results of Ireland remaining an active and influential member of the EU stood at the high 80s last year. It hit the highest level ever at 92%. Numbers that Theresa May can only look at longingly, (laughs) Grania, because one of the things that has struck me this morning is this is all still about the withdrawal agreement. Yeah, because when we look at um, how much time, I mean, one of the reasons why there's such a muted response to this is because nothing has actually happened yet. You know, we haven't had a result. There was an extension, but that's kind of like a a non-result in a way. We have a completely new timeline now as well. Brexit was meant to happen on the 29th of March and then it was meant to happen on Friday. And now it's at the very latest meant to happen on the 31st of October. Some people are saying we could reach that deadline and get another another six month extension Um, if we're still focused on this uh, withdrawal agreement. Um, Theresa May is currently trying to find compromise with Jeremy Corbyn on the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration and the kind of issue of Theresa May's red lines has come up time and time again. She doesn't have very many left. She said no deal was better than a bad deal. She's gone back on that. She said that we're leaving on the 29th of March no matter what. That's completely not true. The only one thing I think she can stick to is the ending the free movement of people. I think that's Theresa May's only red line, really. I think she's willing to compromise on everything else. Um, But I do not think, 
and she said that's something that the la- she has in common with the Labour Party when they said this is something we both want to do. But I do not think there is enough room uh, between the two leaders to try to squeeze a deal through in Parliament. And second to that, if we're going to have a general election in the UK um, to try and change the makeup of the House of Commons to pass a withdrawal agreement through, I can't think of a makeup. I can't think of a Tory leader. I can't think of a different UK government that will get that withdrawal agreement through the House of Commons. Christine, listening to that, it kind of feels like the backstop is fading into the background just a little bit. Are you allowed to say that? Can you say the backstop is fading? <laughs> I mean... I'm not in Britain right now, so... <laughs> mm. I think, like, it hasn't been talked about as much in the past few days, as, or even in the last, say, week or so, as it had been before. But the DUP, um, in their reaction today to what happened uh, at the European Council, their main point was about they're going to be pressing for alternative arrangements to the backstop guarantee. So as soon as this, like, everything that took place overnight the DUP's response was, that's fine, we're looking at the backstop. So they're going to be looking at things like technological solutions or, you know, a trusted trader scheme or they're going back to the very, very essential questions that we've been asking the whole time, that, that sorry, that have been asked about the whole time about the backstop. So even though it hasn't been spoken about much lately, it's still there, it's still the beating heart, it's still the thing that is, you know, at the core of all the of all the conversations. And unsolvable. Potentially, I mean. Well, I, I think... And actually, to follow on from that, Christine, what what gets lost a little bit in the narrative of the backstop is obviously we are so focused on it being about that 500 kilometre border between the North and and the Republic. You know, the 35,000 people who cross who cross it seamlessly to work, shop, study, go to school every day. The 1.85 million car journeys that are taking place and the fact that there's about 297 non-border border crossings, which is more than are on the entire eastern flank of the EU, is that it is also the EU's border, right? So that's going to be the border of the single market, uh, the customs union. And for the EU, it's hugely important that the integrity of the single market is maintained, that we protect consumer rights. Um, so the complexities of Upholding and maintaining peace and, uh, you know, the the Good Friday Agreement and the normalisation of relations on the island of Ireland are vital versus how do you manage the logistical and the uh, legal obligations that are on going to be on Ireland as an EU member state um, that is remaining part of the EU single market. That um, comes up repeatedly in a different frame, I suppose. Uh, People mention that. Uh, The UK doesn't want to put up a border on the island of Ireland. But if there is a no deal Brexit, for example, that it'll be the EU who impose it. So they use it that way, even though it's kind of like a a legal kind of inevitability. But um, one thing that we'll probably hear a little bit more about, maybe just not as politically charged, is if there is a no deal Brexit, how do we avoid it without putting a like how do we avoid putting a border up? Because there have been so many statements from Angela Merkel, from Leo Varadkar, from other members of the EU saying we will do whatever we can to avoid it. So Brexiteers are using that saying this is proof that we don't need the backstop in the first place. That is that that question or that debate hasn't been solved or hasn't been managed. And I don't know if it can be without actually going into a hard or a no deal Brexit and actually having the practicalities answer it, you know, one way or another. Which is hit us in the face. Yeah. And one of the other things that is kind of automatically and immediately going to impact us here is the European elections. And while I just wanted to go through some of the practicalities with you because the 
UK are staying in the EU now till at least June unless the withdrawal agreement gets miraculously passed, um, which it can't next week because they're going on holidays in the House of Commons. But... Yeah, they're back the 23rd of April, I think. Which is hilarious because when Tusk was doing his press conference last night, he said, you know, we need to, please do not waste this time. He said to to the British MPs and they went, oh yeah, fine. And I've gone on holidays for a week and a half. Just throw their books over their shoulders, (laughs) rip the tie off their uniform. They've had a very successful few weeks. Well, to be fair, actually, there is an argument. I mean, I don't know if you, even if you you see any of them on television, to be fair, they do look absolutely wrecked. Absolutely. And, and, And having maybe that little bit of, Time out, you know, recharge the batteries because there have been a lot of um, indicative votes, uh, late night sittings. So they probably do need that little bit of headspace. Maybe that might lead to a bit of clarity. Or and better a- decision making. Yeah, absolutely. There was, <laughs> we can be hopeful, right? <laughs> we can be so optimistic here. Well, I think we probably can't be that hopeful that the this will all be cleared up before the European election. So more than likely, Ireland had been given extra seats. Now we're unclear on that. And some parties made decisions on that. Say Fine Gael have made decisions that they were running a Northern Ireland candidate to try and get representatives for Northern Irish people into the European Parliament. If Britain are holding those elections, what happens to our numbers? Yeah, so basically Ireland currently has 11 MEPs. So what that means is you have the Dublin constituency with three, Ireland South with four, Midlands Northwest with four. What was meant to happen or what is due to happen is that that representation for Ireland goes up to 13. So we we gain an extra two seats with the Dublin constituency gaining an extra seat and Ireland South gaining an extra seat. Ireland South, in fairness, kind of stretches from, you know, West Kerry up to kind of Wicklow. So it's quite, uh, it's kind of half the country. So it's it's quite a geographically uh, dispersed constituency. What that means for us on the 24th of May, when the European Parliament elections take place, is that we just don't know at this stage. Uh, I, I would imagine that the UK will have to give some level of indication uh, pretty soon about whether they're going to actually go ahead with European Parliament elections. But that actually depends on if the withdrawal agreement gets through. What we're seeing is uh, the Tory party and the Labour party are looking for candidates to stand in the elections. Some of the outgoing MEPs in the European Parliament from the UK had their boxes packed. They now have to pretty much unpack them, give or take. Um, But it's going to be uh, really interesting for Ireland and other EU countries who are also gaining seats in in a similar vein as to what happens, whether we end up with 11 or 13. So what we're hearing is that possibly the candidates with the lowest votings, I guess, are pretty much on standby. They're on the subs bench um, until the situation gets gets rectified. But that does cause complexities and challenges as... as So we will elect... Three, four, and four, and then if the UK do leave, the the extra fourth, fifth, and f- uh, in those two constituencies will then get parachuted in. That's that's kind of where it's at uh, at the moment. But obviously, there's there, presumably there's a bit of uh, legislative wriggle re- room um, put into the to the act, and and the minister will will have some options around that. But it's re it's 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 like. I know your, your listeners are probably sick of hearing this, but this is unprecedented. There is no template. There is no off the shelf manual for this. So solutions and workaround solutions at that, whilst maybe not optimum, are trying to be found for dealing with something that has never happened before. Like the last time, right, a country 
voted to leave the EU was Greenland. It took three years, 1985, I think it was. And what is it, a population of 55,000 people. And it was over a single issue to do with fish. So for the UK, we had a population of over 60 million trying to unravel and disentangle that 40 years of collectivity and shared directives and lawmaking and collaboration. So it uh, took them three years to disentangle, what, seven or eight years of uh, integration? So this is 30 years extra on top of that. Absolutely. And also, we've been waiting three years to find out what Britain, what Brexit is actually going to look like. And st- we still don't really know. We still don't know what Brexit actually looks like. So it's kind of funny, the comparisons between the two and the, how, how yeah, different. The mention of the, the issue was over one issue was the other thing. We actually don't know what Brexit they want. Inside of that, again, we don't know what politicians... Uh, if they know what the British people, their constituents voted for either. So how do you uh, make the population, how do you honour the Brexit vote which or the, honour the results of the referendum, which is what we hear over and over again? We don't know what the referendum was really about. Control of your, over their own laws. What laws do you want to change? Limit immigration. How do you want to limit immigration? Just from the EU or outside of that? Because you're talking about increasing relationships with countries outside of the EU But does that include immigration then? Because if you're going to strike up a free trade deal with countries in South America or in Asia, that will have some sort of immigration element to it. But when you say all that, that makes total sense. But that doesn't seem to be where the discussion is at. That that discussion doesn't seem to be taking place around where, you know, what kind of, you know, what exactly they want to represent. There seems to be a split between the political what the the UK want politically and what they want economically. They want all the benefits of integration economically and none of the social benefits, which was the the European Union. Or responsibilities. And you can't, in the European Union, they're saying we're not splitting these two. You're either in the single market and you take free movement of people and the free free, uh, movement of goods, services and capital you can't separate those. That's what their big thing has been. And the UK don't get that still. So we know what they should be talking about, but what will they actually be talking about, Gornley? What's the next step? Um, so the next step, Theresa May, for, for the UK, uh, for Theresa May, uh, she's saying that uh, she wants to strike some sort of deal with Jeremy Corbyn. Um, if that doesn't happen and that those talks break down, she's going to try and get her, her deal passed some other way. Otherwise, we'll be looking at some sort of general election. People are saying a second referendum. I can't see that happening. But because of this longer extension, we always said that if Brexit extended for a longer period of time, it allows for something like a general election or a referendum because the only argument against them so far has been we don't want to have the time. Now, Theresa May has already won a motion of no confidence personally in her leader, leadership and then the, the government uh, motion of no confidence as well. So like she's kind of pretty strong at the moment without having any power. Um, so this is we're, we're back to this kind of stalemate. Another Brexit contradiction. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, this is a bit of a departure for the explainer, but I just want to see if we can predict the future a little bit here. So, Noel. Oh, you did have to start it, yeah, with me. Is, it, is a no deal <laughs> more or less likely now? I, I think it's less likely. I, I I didn't get much sleep last night. I'm not going to lie because I was following your live tweeting and your live <laughs> blog. Okay, Thank you very much, Barbara. Absolutely. Um, so I, I feel a little bit more uh, optimistic now. I think there is still a risk that a no deal may be there. But also, let's not forget as well that they could actually revoke Article 50, but the EU won't want them they can't revoke to rethink. They're going to have to revoke to remain because we can't allow 
uh, the the uncertainty to continue to impact on the efficient functioning of, of, of the EU as well. You know, Just actually to ask that question, part of the conversation last night was to ensure the UK would continue to be sincere and responsible members of yes. the EU. Yes. Is there any legal mechanisms that can ensure that or is it just good faith? Um, I, I, you know, I think it's 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 written into the guidelines from the council and I suppose uh, there's an element of the UK recognising that the, that they have to play ball. What we have seen is the EU has been consistent and solid in its approach in, in prioritising and safeguarding and ensuring that the EU as a whole does not get, well, the word that they use is compromised or infected by the uncertainty that Brexit is Can creating. they kick them out if they do find that they are uh, no, being a bad actor? We don't be talking about it. No, no, there's, <laughs> there, there's, you know. But, You're so optimistic. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, no, there, I, I mean, I think uh, it, it was interesting, actually, to see Donald Tusk last night um, almost kind of leave the door open and uh you know was it um was it Tisha Cleave Radker said in the doll about leaving leaving a light on because there is I suppose there is a deep down cherished hope that that the, amongst many uh many leaders and many member states that the UK might rethink this. The flip side of that is to be quite frank and honest with you there is almost an uh, an equal measure of of uh, sentiment amongst people saying, well, actually, they've been disruptive, they've, they've been recalcitrant, they've been reluctant members over the last 40 years. Would they be better off uh, leaving? As you friends. Know, as friends. Christine, last word, uh, less likely or more likely a no deal? I think it's less likely that we're going to see a no deal now. Um, this week, I actually did think it was quite likely or at least more likely than was probably being given credence for or was being spoken about. Um, and that's partly as a result of being the doomsayer in the newsroom in that I'm always looking out for the worst case scenario. But I think what we saw um, from the council yesterday was that this really, really strong ability, this this compromise that, you know, that the EU is so much about And there was a thing that uh, Donald Tusk said yesterday, which was that he was talking about the EU leaders. They may not have the same position um, when they walk into a room, but they're united enough to have a common conclusion. And I thought that showed that really sums up that the EU is just going to compromise. It's just or is willing to discuss this and willing to get to a place where there is um, a a deal like they're they're much more. You know, their approach is to get a deal. Consensual is the word I was looking for there. That's what they want. And I think that given that kind of that approach to it, it's much more difficult for Britain to leave without without a deal. Thanks for sorting all of that out for us, Noel, Christine and Grania. Thank you for listening to The Explainer. As always, this episode was lovingly produced by Aoife Barry. Christine Bohan was as excellent an executive producer as she was a contributor. Our assistant producer and tech operator is Nikki Ryan. Thanks also to Gronya Nia and Noelle O'Connell for contributing. Finally, a quick heads up that our next episode will actually be on Tuesday the 23rd. That's after the Easter Bank holiday. But in the meantime, there are plenty of episodes to look back on, some particularly relevant ones at the moment. As measles outbreaks lead to an emergency being declared in New York, listen to how Ireland has seen a 200% rise in incidence of the disease. There's also an episode where we examine how Ireland might deal with the return of citizens who fled to the Islamic State. That comes as our reporter Gareth McNamee revealed that former Defence Forces members warned their superiors that Lisa Smith had been radicalised. And if you're enjoying these episodes, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Sinead O'Carroll and we'll catch you next time.